Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable from Kigali, Rwanda. I told y'all a while ago how bad I wanted to come to Rwanda. Rwanda, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo are the only places that have access to mountain gorillas. It's exactly what they sound like. Gorillas in a mountain, and you hike up, at least in Rwanda, up a volcano to reach these mountain gorillas. It's super, super expensive. It's like $1,500 to see the gorillas, and that's just for the hike. It can take anywhere from an hour to three hours to access them in the forest. And when you see them, you stay with them for an hour and then you come back. They get agitated if you're there too long. And humans being in their space, especially like the young gorillas, get distracted by the guests and they don't focus on their gorilla task and their gorilla family. So you hang out with them for an hour and then you walk back down the mountain. I've been talking about doing this forever. When Global Citizen announced they were doing this concert with Kendrick Lamar, which is literally tonight. I'm recording this on Wednesday morning, super, super, super early. But when Global Citizen announced that they were doing Kendrick in Rwanda, I was like, oh, well, then that's when I'm going to see the gorillas. The tourism board for Rwanda did an event in Ghana, but they had a really cute event at one of my favorite restaurants in Accra. And I was on the fence about the Kendrick thing. Rwanda Air, for whatever reason, wasn't coming up in my kayak search. It was expensive to get here. There was no direct flight. The good hotels were booked up because all the people coming in town for Kendrick. And then like the cost of the gorillas. And I was like, okay, this is doing the most. But then I went to the Visit Rwanda event and I connected with some people from the tourism board. And they were like, oh, do you want to come? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, oh, all right. So, you know, we'll take care of everything. And I was like, oh, okay. They also got me on a good Air Rwanda flight business class. This direct from across. So it's five hours each way. I landed in Kigali at like 1030, was checked into my hotel in my room at midnight. I had a 5 a.m. call time because we had to drive two hours out to Volcanoes National Park, which is where the gorillas are. Didn't even bother to go to sleep and couldn't if I wanted to. Like I just had so much anticipation. Going to see these gorillas has been on my bucket list for a really long time. And I was like, oh, my God, it's here. Like it's actually happening. I had this ordeal in Ghana trying to find like a long sleeve shirt and hiking boots. And I was like, I don't know why I just didn't get all this stuff in America and bring it with me. But I didn't. But yeah, I found everything I needed. We headed out the next morning. And after a uphill walk over rocks and through mud and water and a steep incline, like at one point, it was just like we were walking up really steep steps, but like not steps because it was all like grass and rocks and bamboo and dirt and mud. It was a lot. But we walked that 40 minutes just to get to the entrance of the park. And then once we got in the park, it was even more challenging, if you will. Like we were just walking in like straight mud. It's a rainforest. It really does rain all the time. At one point, I stepped in dirt, mud, whatever, and like my whole foot like past my ankle on the hiking boot like just my whole foot went into the mud and that happened I don't know 20 times in the course of the hike like just yeah at one point I was like do I really want to see these gorillas like is it that serious but then we were too far in it to turn back around and I was like oh god now I'm like committed to this and then like as soon as I was like I'm done it has started to rain I'm tired of almost busting my ass I did not go down I have a porter with me I paid a guy to carry my backpack 
because I had my camera equipment. I had the good camera with me. Also, because I was the only person with the backpack, they put the water bottles in my bag. So this guy is carrying my stuff, but also like literally held my hand. I would say 80% of the journey, definitely all the way down because it was super steep and super slippery. He fell. I didn't fall. But on the way up, like he held and pulled and balanced. And I was like, God bless this man. You know, at the end of the thing, like I was like, how much do I owe you? And I thought he was going to say something like completely outrageous, which I was like, you just climbed a mountain to see some gorillas that you've seen 50 million times and with water bottles and camera equipment on your back and held my hand the whole time. He said like 10,000 Rwandan francs. And I was like, oh, OK, so I reached in my bag and I gave it to him and I was confused. And I was like, shouldn't he have just asked for like all my money at least? So I had to pull out my phone and did the calculation. You know, that man did all that for the equivalent of eight dollars USD. I called him back and gave him some more money. Like my soul didn't feel right paying somebody $8 for that amount of work. That's not even minimum wage, is it? I was like, Noel, that was his name. I was like, can you come here, please? I was like, come back, please, please come back. But just when I thought I was about to die and was just going to be like, you know, go on without me, y'all. Our guy stopped and he was like, okay. So the gorillas are like around the corner. They're like 300 feet away. And I was like, wait, what? I went from being near dead to being super excited. I had a huge adrenaline rush. So we walked around. To call it a corner would be inaccurate. We walked through the brush. Grass, mud, dirt, bamboo. Our guide has a machete and he's literally chopping a path before us. So we're not getting hit in the face with like vines and bamboo and whatnot. And then the gorillas were there. And they were just like sitting there chilling. Like it had started to rain a little bit. It was drizzle. It was probably around... I don't know, maybe like 1130 or so. And they were just like chilling. Like it was their it was their resting time. So like the mothers and the babies, like the really young babies were just like laying out, chilling. The mothers were cuddling the kids and taking a nap. And then there were some toddlers. Oh, my God. Toddler gorillas are the cutest things I've ever seen. They're so adorable. But they were like playing in the trees and like falling out the trees. Like it was it was adorable. And then we found the alpha male of the group, the silverback gorilla. He was like perched on a hill, just eating some bamboo and chilling. But even though he appeared to be sitting, he was massive. All the adults are massive, but the silverback gorilla is just huge. I felt like I was like living in the King Kong franchise. And I was like, is that why I'm obsessed with gorillas? Between that and being an 80s kid who played Donkey Kong all the time, I had that little handheld game. I used to love Donkey Kong. But yeah, we just like hung out with the gorillas. The hour went by so fast. It felt like we'd been there 15 minutes. Um, but they were really, really beautiful. And I got great pictures, great video. Also, I'd read a bunch of guys about gorilla trekking. And they encouraged that as much as you want to like photograph the gorillas and capture the memories and all of that. And they were like, just put your phone down for 20 minutes and just like sit and be in awe of something. And so I did. I just like watched them sleep or rest or get rained on. Once the rain really picked up, all the mom gorillas were like holding the babies and the toddlers as well, protecting them from the rain. It was really human. Mountain gorillas also have 98% DNA with humans. When we were trekking, we didn't have to wear masks. But when we got close to the gorillas, they asked us all to put COVID masks on. So any germs or illness that we have wouldn't be spread to the gorillas. They're highly susceptible to human disease because... 98% DNA. Gorillas can get COVID and the flu and colds from humans. It's like, this is wild. But they're very peaceful. They're very gentle. Of our like list of things to do, don't point at the gorillas. 
turn the flash off on your phone, I think would be obvious. Don't throw things at the gorillas, but they specifically said it. And I was like, somebody did that dumb shit, didn't they? Obviously, don't approach or try to touch the gorillas. They were like, if the gorilla approaches you, be still. Whatever you do, don't run. They said sometimes the younger gorillas will come up to the humans. They're curious about them, but they don't mean any harm. Gorillas are very, very peaceful. They're vegetarian. They have no desire to eat you, but they're strong as hell and can fuck you up if they so choose. You should not put them in a position where they choose violence. And I was like, okay. I had one of my cameras with a decent lens on it. Everything that I read said that it wasn't necessary to use because the gorillas are right there. Like you don't need to zoom in on them that far. For most of it, I just picked up my iPhone and didn't even zoom and just took pictures of them because they were like sitting right there. It's an amazing experience. Getting back down that mountain was sheer hell. It was just pure mud and we were just slipping and sliding and trying not to bust our ass on the way down. But once we got to the clearing and you could see the volcanoes again, because, you know, we're not on a volcano. We're at the bottom of one. You can see the rest of them. Like the views were just out of this world. Just ugh, astounding. I ain't never seen no ish like that. Like it was gorgeous. Rwanda in general has like a really beautiful landscape. The nickname for the country, if you will, is the land of a thousand hills. So many rolling hills throughout the country. And it's very lush and beautiful and like almost like technicolor green and then all these beautiful rolling hills in the heart of the city in Kigali they got houses built all up in the hills and so driving through the city it's just really really beautiful and then also at night all the twinkling lights throughout the hills it's a really beautiful beautiful place and super super clean we don't have this level of cleanliness in any place I've ever been in America I've only seen it in the Middle East and Vienna. It's like Disney level clean where like everything looks perfect. The government is like hard body about cleanliness and then also environmentalism. Plastic bags here are outlawed. They're like borderline contraband. I think you can be fined for having a plastic bag. When I was in the airport coming in, there was a guy who had had his bag wrapped in plastic for, you know, security and safety. And security at the Kigali airport approached him and made him cut the plastic off of his bag. And he was like, what? And they were like, nah, this gotta come off. Like, he was very confused. But yeah, like no unnecessary plastic. But beautiful, beautiful place. I'm definitely enjoying it. Other than the gorillas, we went to the Genocide Museum yesterday, which Rwanda is famous for the two Gs, gorillas and, and genocide. Famous for one, infamous for another. Rwanda's genocide happened when I was in high school. And I don't remember much reporting about it, which at the museum yesterday, they were like, yeah, like the world kind of ignored it. Like, even though there was a whistleblower who I think went to the UN and was like, hey, there, there, there's a genocide occurring in Rwanda. And people were just like, yeah, that's like some Africa shit. The first time it really popped on my radar was there was a movie with Don Cheadle, Hotel Rwanda. And that's when I learned about it, which by the accounts of my new Rwandan friends, they were like, I mean, it was a movie. It's not entirely accurate. And I was like, well, it's a movie. I didn't really expect it to be. But I was like, that's how the genocide landed on a lot of our radar. Like, we just weren't aware in the rest of the world. And they were like, yeah, because no one did anything. I was like, okay. The genocide happened 29 years ago. It's still, for obvious reasons, very fresh. When I was going through the museum, I read a statistic that said... 
80% of people who were children at the time of genocide had seen, I want to say, a family member murdered. I was like, that's your childhood memory? And by family, like your sister, your mother, your father, like immediate family. There were so many things that struck me. And we went through the museum very fast. There was a a dignitary from the UK. I want to say the home secretary who was in town. And he was also visiting the museum. So we got there maybe like 15 minutes before him. And so they were rushing us ahead. There were so many things that stood out about Rwanda's genocide in particular. I think it's when I think of genocide, obviously I think of the Holocaust because that's the one that's most often talked about. But I think of it as obviously like a government sanctioned thing and something where you've got like the military involved because you're wiping out, killing, murdering, call it what it is, masses of people. But Rwanda's genocide asked not just the military to kill people, but like everyday people, like your neighbor. Going through the exhibit, it was multiple stories of survivors. Like, yeah, we live next to these people. I am from one ethnic group and they are from another ethnic group. But it wasn't an issue. Like me and my brother were 8 and 11 and their kids were 8 and 11. So we played with them all the time. We called their father, uncle, godfather, whatever. They did the same for my dad. And then when the genocide occurs... The guy telling the story was like, my mom went to the neighbor and was like, help us, hide us. Like, this, like they're trying to kill us. The neighbor called other people to come kill this woman that he lived next door to. And they like hacked her to death with a machete. The person telling the story was like, yeah, like they hacked my mom and then they hacked my brother and I ran away and hid. That's the only reason I'm alive. They would tell stories about like people going into churches for sanctuary because And then like the priest is the one who called and was like, hey, I got a bunch of folks over here. Y'all want to come kill them? And folks did. There's another story about the military showed up at this elementary school and they told the kids like to divide between the ethnic group that's able to live and the ethnic group that was able to die. And the kids were like, nope, we're all Rwandans. Like you're not going to divide us like that. So they threw a grenade into a schoolroom and killed a bunch of kids. There's this one specific part of the museum that's dedicated to the children who were killed during the genocide. It's big pictures of kids. And then it's like the kid's name, the kid's age when they were killed, their favorite subject in school or like their favorite hobby, their favorite food. It just gives you like a sense of humanity. And then it would be like how they died. We weren't allowed to take pictures in the museum, but I took notes because I was like, this is crazy. This is the list of ways that they listed children would die. I mean, children like two, five, seven, nine, I think was the oldest. We're not even talking about 10 and 11 year olds. Shot in the head, hacked by machete, stabbed in her eyes and head, grenade thrown in shower, burnt alive, hacked by machete at grandmother's house, machete in mother's arms, smashed against the wall, age two. There's also a video in the museum. It shows the carnage and they, it, it includes video of children who had been hacked with machetes and survived. So you're looking at these teeny tiny kids, like five, four, seven, with open gashes in their head where someone hacked them with a machete. And I was like, what the fuck? The museum notes like how the genocide wasn't just about 
killing people. It was also about torturing them before they killed them. It wasn't just ethnic cleansing. It was psychotic, evil shit. They would often rape the women in front of their families. Men who were known, this is the 90s, but men who were known to be infected with HIV, they would have them rape the women. And then sometimes they'd kill the women, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they would let the women live so that they could die from HIV. It's crazy shit. Last thing, if you've been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C., one of the standout features for me and a lot of people, because people always talk about it, there is a room where they collected the shoes from the Jewish people who were killed at the concentration camps. And so you see all these shoes. You can hear a number and the number is just a number, but you see all these shoes and you can see it really connects like all these people were killed. My God. For Rwanda's genocide, I think the number is a million people in 100 days. Bodies were left in the street. Sometimes they were in mass graves. The Rwandan government found the mass graves, the people in the street as well, and they brought some of the bodies to this particular memorial site. There are 250,000 remains of people at this particular museum, memorial site, graveyard, if you will. There's two rooms that stand out in the museum. People have donated pictures of their loved ones who were murdered during the genocide. And those pictures, there's so many of them, so, so many of them are hanging almost like Christmas lights in this one room. You go into the next room and it's the skulls and bones of people who were murdered in the genocide. The Holocaust Museum gives you the shoes. Rwanda just lays it out flat. Like, here are the skulls and tons of them laid out very symmetrically of people who were killed. And if you look at the skulls, you can see some of them have holes in them where people were shot in the head multiple times. Some of them, like, half the jaw is missing. God only knows what happened to that person. Or or just other holes or damage to the skulls. People died really, really, really brutal deaths. It's just, it's so much. And then there's an exhibition upstairs, because all I've described to you is just like the basement. It's three parts of the museum. Upstairs is a room about genocides. Most people talk about the Holocaust. Um, Rwanda, for obvious reasons, talked about their own genocide, but there's been genocides around the world throughout human history. And there's this whole checklist, if you will, of what constitutes a genocide. And basically, it's describing Palestine right now. The museum doesn't specifically mention Palestine, but if you go by the genocide checklist, that's exactly what's occurring now. It's a lot. Oh, okay. I lied. One more thing. I told you they were rushing us through the exhibit. And you know, like, I like to linger. I like to watch the videos. I like to read all the captions. Plus, I've got the audio in my head. Like, I get really engaged and stuff. The government, this is before the genocide, they were, like, priming the population by othering one of the groups of people. So I'm going through the museum, and I'm lagging behind. And I told you there's, like, this dignitary that's coming in behind me. So the guy tells me, he was reading something. He was like, just take a picture of it so you can keep moving. Say less, sir. It's the Hutu. That was the, that was the group that was in charge. That's the one that was pushing the genocide. It has 10 commandments. And I want to read to you 
the first three because they specifically focus on women. They made a point during the genocide to kill women because women give life. If you let a woman survive, then she can partner with somebody else and the kid will be half her ethnicity. So it's very much a point to exterminate, murder women. But men were also encouraged not to engage with the women of this particular ethnic group. So this was published in 1990, just so we have an understanding of how not that long ago this was. It says, all Hutus must know that Tutsi women, wherever she may be, is serving the Tutsi ethnic group. In consequence, any Hutu who does the following is a traitor, acquires a Tutsi wife, acquires a Tutsi mistress, acquires a Tutsi secretary or a dependent. All Hutus must know that our daughters are more worthy and more conscientious in their role of woman, spouse, and mother. Are they not more beautiful, good secretaries, and more sincere? Hutu women, be vigilant and bid your husbands, brothers, and sons to come to their senses, basically to be anti-Tutsi women. Just the way it's like so laid out. And I'm like, you put this in writing in 1990? Are you serious right now? And were. But like encouraging the women to convince their husbands and then also pitting the women against each other. This is some diabolical shit. The museum was a lot. It was a very sobering experience. They had us go to the gravesite and pay our respects to the remains of the 250,000 people buried in the museum. It was very, um, as horrible as you would expect it to be. It was bad. But that's Rwanda so far. Everything else we've done, we've been eating at amazing restaurants and we've been consuming cocktails responsibly to a degree. But yeah, it's been a really good trip so far. Tonight is the Kendrick Lamar concert, which I'm super, super excited about. I think like most people that his first album is a masterpiece and he's an excellent performer. And I was hanging out with some of the Global Citizen women last night. There's a restaurant in Ghana that's like super, super popular, Kozo. They opened one in Rwanda, which is twice the size and beautiful. So, so beautiful. But it was the opening night party for Global Citizen. And I ran into a few friends who were working the event. And they were telling me about the stage design for Kendrick. So excited. It sounds amazing. I cannot wait. But I'll tell you about the rest of that on Friday's podcast. I'll still be in Rwanda. I'm staying through the weekend after the trip with Visit Rwanda is over. I just wanted to stay in the city and do some non-touristy things. I just want to get to see more of the country. Like, it's so beautiful. I want to try, like, their local cuisine and maybe go to a lounge and hear some music or whatever. Um, But I really like it here. Rwanda's dope. What do we have on our list this week? We have good Black news. U.S. Weekly is reporting that Ashanti and Nelly are expecting to Shanti's first child. It's Nelly's, I think, third. Um, He has two grown, grown children. I want to say they're like 24 and 29. And then, according to Us Weekly, a baby on the way. Us Weekly is reporting, quote, Ashanti is pregnant, expecting her first baby with boyfriend Nelly. And then they cite a source exclusively tells us. I'm like, so Ashanti didn't say it and Nelly didn't say it and none of their representatives said it. This is the source. Who's the source? It's like, is it her sister? Is it her mother? Is it one of Nelly's kids? Like, who's the source? The LA Times also covered the story and they made a point to mention that they reached out to representatives of Ashanti and Nelly and no one would confirm. So I was like, so is she or isn't she? I mean, if she is, happy for it. And if she's not, still happy for it. 
I'm just like, you know, I need one of them or one of their publicists to confirm. And then I'll release my full joy. What else is on our list? There's not a bunch of good black news. I mean, there's news. I saw Queen Latifah was at the Kennedy Center for the Kennedy Center Honors. She received an award and she is the first black woman rapper to receive the award. I'm reading this on NPR. Oh, it's not just Queen Latifah. Again, on NPR, it says the stars came to D.C. Sunday to celebrate this year's Kennedy Center honorees, Dionne Warwick and Queen Latifah. There were some others, but among the artists who paid tribute to the honorees were Kerry Washington, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Whoopi Goldberg, Cynthia Erivo, Sigourney Weaver, Clive Davis, and Missy Elliott. They said for Dionne Warwick, her friend Gladys Knight performed Say a Little Prayer and Chloe Bailey saying walk on by. The rest of our news, nothing else is really good. I have on the list, Oprah and Gail are looking snatched. Oprah Winfrey is like on a major publicity tour promoting the color purple, which comes out, I think, Christmas Day. She's been doing something almost every day to promote this film. Tons of pictures and video everywhere. She's posted them on her Instagram and she's turned off the comments. I was like, when did this happen? People are obviously reposting the pictures of her on other pages. And all of the comments are about her new size. Oprah is tiny. She looks good. She looks real, real good. Like the hair is flourishing. The waist is snatched. The skin looks great. The wardrobe adorning the new frame is right. She looks really good. But everybody's like, oh, her and the whole crew are on Ozempic. Because Gail is snatched right now. Ava's snatched. Like, you know, those are like three Amigas. And I was like, look, whatever they're doing. They exercising, they ingesting, they inserting, injecting, whatever they doing, they look good. And I was like, pass me some shit. And last but not least, I don't know if we have time to do Sheila and Bob today. We might have to save our next installment for Friday. Jonathan Major's trial has begun. It's starting off to be the shit show you might expect it to be. I read the details on Vanity Fair. They're covering the trial day by day. They've got a recap about day two. The headline is Jonathan Major's accuser testifies about the actor's violent temper. And the first thing that they mention is that jurors saw photos of alleged property damage Majors caused during a dispute with his then-girlfriend and heard a recording in which he tells the girlfriend, this is the white blonde girl, that she, quote, needs to live up to the standards of Coretta Scott King and Michelle Obama. Nigga, what? If you want a woman to act like a black woman, why don't you just go get a black woman? Why you go get this white girl who clearly doesn't act like Coretta Scott King or Michelle Obama? Because you got to tell her that's what you want. That's not what she is. But like, why don't you just go get a girl that acts like that? But Vanity Fair has a lot of details from the ex-girlfriend's testimony. Let's go through a few and see what she's talking about. The overall takeaway is that the actor was, quote, prone to aggressive behavior long before the alleged domestic dispute that led to misdemeanor charges of assault and harassment against majors. That was in March. We finally have exact details about the text message that came through that allegedly started all of the melee. The alleged melee. It says uh, Jonathan Majors and his girlfriend were riding in a vehicle and she grabbed his phone from him after seeing a text message that said, quote, wish I was kissing you right now. 
and it was sent by a woman who was listed in the actor's phone as Cleopatra. You can't make this shit up. I think it's also important to note here that Majors has pled not guilty to all of the counts against him. The ex-girlfriend testified there was a great honeymoon phase when they first started dating. He used to write her poetry. She said, quote, I felt very loved and cared for. And she said, but after a few months, quote, the defendant's true self emerged. The ex says Majors became angry with her the first time in 2021, December 2021, upon her first meeting with his dogs. She said she brought up an ex-boyfriend who had a dog and Majors allegedly raised his voice and said, how dare I mention him? She said Majors told her it's embarrassing to him that his girlfriend had dated this guy and his dog is pathetic. She says this is the kind of stuff he would say. It was the first time I felt scared of him. There were more encounters. She said there was an incident in July 2022 where Majors, quote, just exploded. She said it was a violent temper, rage, a bit of aggression. It doesn't say what it was over, but it says Majors allegedly threw a candle at the wall, leaving a dent. A photograph of the dent in the wall was shown to jurors. The girlfriend says, quote, I took the photo because the shift in his temper was something that I was aware of. I just wanted to remember. I know I kept forgiving him, but I wanted to have a bit of a memory of it. She said, at the time, I said to him, please stop, calm down. You don't need to be doing this. She said he started shaking and crying and saying that he was a monster. There's another incident, September 2022. She says that Majors accused her of being an alcoholic and tore her headphones off her head before berating her. The jurors also held a recording that the girlfriend had made. This is the one we talked about at the very beginning where he told the girlfriend that she needs to live up to the standards of Coretta Scott King and Michelle Obama. He said, I am a great man. I do great things for my culture and for the world. The woman that supports me needs to be a great woman. Two nights ago, you did not do that, which took away from the plan. The girlfriend said she interpreted that to mean that, quote, he had to come first. She said, I just took the full blame to calm him down. She allegedly vowed not to tell anyone about the conflict and left, quote, quite scared of him and yet dependent on him. None of that sounds good. Essentially, and this is just for me watching all my legal dramas all these years, it sounds like the prosecution is trying to establish a pattern of controlling or emotionally abusive or violent behavior from majors. Now that the woman has said that his expectation of her was Coretta Scott King or... Michelle Obama, that whole stand by your man thing. I mean, it kind of makes sense with how Megan is, is showing up for him. Like, that's what he likes. I think a lot of us have been looking at Megan like, girl, I get one to ride for a dude. But I'm like, ride for him while he's on trial for like beating his ex-girlfriend? That's when you decide to ride? I don't understand why she has to support him publicly. I'm like, you can't ride for him like at home? Like, I don't understand why you got to show up to his trial with him. Like, I could see if he was on trial for, like, I don't know, something other than beating a woman. I told you my theory that the, I think the text message that started all of this came from Megan Good, and so she feels like she has to stand by him. It's the only thing that really makes sense. 
Maybe she would feel like the whole thing was her fault because it was her text message. And so she feels like she needs to stand by him. I don't know. I just know I like Megan good. But I'm like, if you were just going to live in messy shit, like, why don't you just stay with the pastor? I mean, he's the one that filed. By nearly all accounts, she didn't want to get divorced. But I was like, if you're going to play Michelle Obama or Coretta Scott King for a man who's sitting on trial for abusing his ex and to shape shift for your ex-husband, do whatever it was that he wanted you to do to make him happy. I don't understand Megan's choices. I like Megan good. I've grown up with Megan good. I wish the best for her, but I just, uh, I know we ride at dawn if he ever lay hands on her. Like Jonathan may just think he got problems now. He gonna fuck around and be worse than Kiki Palmer's baby daddy. I do think it's notable to note at this moment, Jonathan Major's attorney, which is what I expect her to do. She said, this was during opening statements. She says, the ex-girlfriend is doing this, making these, quote, false allegations out of, quote, revenge to ruin Mr. Major's and take away everything he spent his life working for. That's what they're going with. Like the, the ex is crazy, deranged, and she's just out for revenge because he broke up with her. And I was like, maybe... Or maybe not. We'll continue following this trial to its conclusion. So yeah, that's the episode for today. I'll be back on Friday with a little bit more. Enjoy your week. Bye. Bye.